comedy in itself is a higher risk of mortality. We'll see if they call into question our current practice. You really don't know what's going on. I don't reach for propofol that often. There may be some selection bias to this. There's always going to be limitations. Looks like you're infusing milk. Is that what you took away? Welcome everyone to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Thanks so much for joining us for another CCPEM podcast. We have two articles to discuss this month that are hot off the press and pertain to, as always, a very pertinent topic that we encounter and a procedure that we typically do in emergency medicine resuscitation and critical care, and that is rapid sequence intubation with attention to the selection of induction agents. So two new articles that, well, we'll see if they call into question our current practice of sedatives for RSI. But before we get into education, before we review these articles, let me bring in my co-hosts. Dr. John Greenwood, Dr. Peter W., and Dr. Rob Rodriguez. You've listened to them. You know them well. Let's check in and see how they're doing. John, how are you this podcast recording? Doing great, Mike, and it's wonderful to be here with all you guys right before Memorial Day weekend. So with that, as always, I'd like to say thank you to all of those men and women service members who take care of and protect our country. I'm fortunate to have some family members in the military and are out in Arizona right now. So shout out to Jay and Katie and all of them. Love you guys. Outstanding. You always say that so well, John. Thanks for saying those words. Peter. Yeah. So full-blown summertime in New Orleans. So it's hot and humid. We're at it. So a festival season is off in full gear. So Jazz Fest just completed another spectacular year for that. Great food and music. Outstanding. Well, let's round things out on the West Coast with Dr. Rodriguez. Yeah, it's cold and humid out here. But doing okay. Looking forward to the summer. Having the kids back for a little bit. And yeah, excited to spend a summer with them. That's going to be great. Well, speaking of excitement, we want to just highlight an upcoming conference that I will have the opportunity to attend. And that is actually going to be overseas. It is going to be in Rome. It is going to be in September. It is an emergency cardiology and critical care course that is put on by many colleagues over in Rome. It is the core conference, and what we are going to do is link to that conference on the homepage of ccpem.blog. So when you go to download this particular episode, you'll see it. You'll be able to link and check out the details for a super fun and exciting time in Rome in the fall in an outstanding location and really great conference content. I'll have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Matu and Dr. Malamut overseas, so if you Have an interest in that conference, great food, great wine, great content. Please click on that link that we will link to from our homepage. Well, on to some education. Our topic for this month, as I alluded to, is the selection of induction agents for RSI in critically ill patients. And that is going to be focused on two articles we are going to touch on this particular podcast discussion dealing with two commonly used agents for sedation during RSI, and that's going to be Atomidate as well as Propofol. 
And our first article we're going to touch on was just published online in the Journal of Critical Care. The lead author was Katani, and it is titled, Etomidate as an Induction Agent for Endotracheal Intubation in Critically Ill Patients, a Meta-Analysis of Randomized Trials. Now, I would say probably the majority of us use Etomidate very frequently as an induction agent for intubation, not only in the ICU, but also in the emergency department when intubating critically ill patients. We like Etomidate for overall, it's quick onset and generally hemodynamically neutral profile, especially in those with labile hemodynamics. However, as we've talked about and highlight a few of these studies over the past several years here on CCPEM, the literature is mixed when it has looked at the utilization of Etomidate compared to other agents such as ketamine. There's been some literature favoring Etomidate, and then there's also been some literature highlighting that it may be associated with increased short-term mortality. And it's with that premise that these authors put together this meta-analysis of RCTs to look at Etomidate. So let me kick things over to you, Peter. What was the objective along with the methods for this particular paper? Well, thanks, Mike. And so when we look at the objective here, it's really to compare Atomidate to the other anesthetic agents in terms of mortality in those that are critically ill. And then you think about the methods, the study and location was a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials that were published up until September 20th, 2022. So fairly current literature update. And then the patients that were included were those who were critically ill adults undergoing endotracheal intubation in different settings. It could be in the pre-hospital setting, they could be in the emergency department setting, as well as the ICU settings. So all three of those areas. Who was excluded in this study? So the people who fell out or weren't included would include those that were not randomized controlled trials. So they dropped systematic reviews, they dropped editorials, and they dropped literature reviews. They didn't include pediatric patients, those under the age of 15, and those who received instead of bolus induction, but infusions instead were excluded. So if you got infusions, accommodate or another agent, they were excluded, they're looking at boluses. And so the trial procedures, two independent investigators actually extracted randomized control trials on PubMed, used EM-BASE and Cochrane Library using a standard data collection form. If the studies lacked data, investigators would actually reach out to the authors for additional information. They assessed bias, risk, via a Cochrane risk, a bias tool that has been utilized before. And they looked at primary outcome being mortality at time point defined by the study. And then secondary outcomes, the development of adrenal insufficiency, something we have looked at before with the utilization of Atomidate. And then safety outcomes included hypernatremia. And then they also looked at healthcare-associated infections. Outstanding, Peter. This seems like a very pertinent question. We want to know if medications we're using for RSI may be linked to increased mortality or associated with increased mortality. So turning to you, John, what did they find? Well, they found a lot of records. So almost 4,400 records identified in total. And they then went through and essentially applied the exclusion criteria 
that include kind of duplicates, irrelevant to the actual clinical question. They didn't include any non-randomized control trials. Those studies are trials without mortality outcomes, and then those not involving really sick, critically ill patients, which I know sometimes can be hard to decipher, but generally probably not elective intubations here are studies that included elective intubation. And in total, they found 11 randomized control trials that in total included 2,700 critically ill adults. And this was a pretty diverse patient population that included subjects from all over the world. Eight of the studies and trials were in the United States. One was from the UK, one from France, and one from Netherlands. So I guess you could say there are some populations that weren't represented here. And when they compared it against this, maybe like another induction agent, they looked at multiple drugs. So the comparator group could have included ketamine, midazolam, thiopental. Man, I haven't used thiopental, I don't think, ever but sorry, ketamine, midazolam, and ketamine and propofol. So a lot of the common agents we actually use in the emergency department, maybe with some additional agents that we don't often use, but it did not include propofol alone, which I think is interesting. The primary outcome here was obviously mortality measured in all 11 studies. And in the automatic group, included 319 patients that was represented about 23% of the sample size and compare that to 267 patients that was about 20% of the sample size studied. So 23% in the Tomidate group and 20% in the comparator group that basically included nearly all other sedatives for intubation. Now, when they did the statistical analysis, they found a relative risk of 1.16 that favored the comparison group for less likely to die. And the confidence interval, though, was nearly one. And so what that means was it just beat out statistical significance by a hair. It was 1.01 to 1.33, and that gave a p-value of 0.03. Now, they calculated the number needed to harm, and that was 31. So that sounds a little bit more impressive. But what about when we're looking at mortality and automate versus ketamine? Well, they asked that question too, and it looks like the statistics still hold true that automate in itself is a higher risk of mortality compared to ketamine alone. Now, when we looked at secondary outcomes, risk of renal adrenal insufficiency that was measured in six studies, there was 21% in the automate group, 10% in the comparator group. Now, this one was a little bit higher and I think significantly higher with a relative risk of nearly two, and that was a p-value of 0 0.001. So this one was borne out to be a much higher risk. And when they did a sensitivity analysis for the primary secondary outcomes, they still found increased mortality and adrenal insufficiency in the automate group. So it appears that based off this meta-analysis, there was a slightly higher statistically significant increased risk for mortality, but a statistically significant and more likely positive outcome for adrenal insufficiency. Although we'll talk about those limitations in just a second. All right. Outstanding job, John. Thanks for taking us through those results. So as you're listening to it, whether you're driving, listening to the podcast, thinking, hmm, automate associated with increased mortality. Hmm, how can that be? Should we change practice? Well, we're going to hold on getting to that discussion because I want to turn to Dr. Rodriguez and have him take us through some of the limitations of this meta-analysis. 
Thanks, Mike. So these meta-analyses are always subject to problems with heterogeneity, and this study is no exception to that. The authors did a pretty good job of self-identifying these limitations, and there was heterogeneity in the various studies in a lot of different aspects. So there was heterogeneity in terms of the timing of the mortality measurements. In other words, was that truly 30-day outcome versus some other point in time? There was heterogeneity between the studies in terms of the various comparator induction agents, which is a big deal when you're trying to pool data from different studies and the primary outcome comparators are different, then that can be problematic. They did, as noted by John, they did conduct sensitivity analysis for some of that to control for that multiple comparators, which still showed significant differences. Further heterogeneity is found in the way that they diagnosed adrenal insufficiency course, there are a couple of different ways you can do that. And these studies did not do it all in the same fashion. And then finally, there's some heterogeneity when you look at the induction and sedation medications that were added to accommodate. For example, in some studies, they may have added to accommodate or the comparator. In some studies, they may have added an additional dose of fentanyl or something else like that for example, to the regimen. So these studies weren't pure automate versus pure other induction agent. They added other medications. So those are the major limitations, Mike. Thanks, Rob. Now, on our normal podcast where we review just one paper, we now get into our discussion and take-home points. But before doing so, let's jump over to the second paper that I alluded to during the introduction to this podcast, this first one here on Atomidate, but the next one on Propofol. John, can I ask you to take us through this article? Yeah, absolutely. And this was a great kind of counterpoint and interesting second article to kind of discuss because it's kind of in the similar fashion in terms of how the paper was written and the study was done. So the same group led by Dr. Kotani, this was published in Critical Care just about a month ago, around the same time, where they looked at propofol in survival. And this was an updated meta-analysis of randomized control trials using propofol as a induction agent for RSI and whether or not it's associated with increased mortality. And I think in the emergency department, propofol may or may not be something that we commonly use, but certainly with our anesthesia colleagues who take care of critically ill patients and in the intensive care unit, it probably is used a lot more commonly. So I think that it's a very important question, especially as we're alluding to the fact or seeing literature that would suggest that a more commonly used drug is associated with increased mortality, we're considering other drugs, right? So propofol acts basically as a CNS depressant, but it does have some significant cardiovascular effects that include vasodilatation while also calling CNS depression. And if the dose is high enough, it can produce significant hypotension. Now, it's an ideal drug for RSI in other ways in that it's rapidly eliminated, but the onset is pretty quick. So this is good, but we have to be careful of those side effects, right? So respiratory depression, hypotension that we might get can also cause some hemodynamic consequences during that peri-intubation phase. So some other things that might 
be harmful with propofol. While there's the propofol infusion syndrome, which maybe you have seen characterized by increasing metabolic acidosis, rhabdomyolysis, pancreatitis, and hepatic dysfunction. And this is only usually seen with really high doses for a long period of time. Occasionally, you can get contamination of propofol because it is suspended within a lipid base. Inhibition of organ protective effects of other drugs. So more leaning on our anesthesia colleagues. So inhaled anesthetics can sometimes be affected by the use of propofol during sedation. But certainly, and just to reinforce one more time, in patients with heart dysfunction or who have severe vasoplegia, the vasodilatory effects can be pretty significant in these patients. So the current data and recommendations are that we should be avoiding using propofol in our pediatric populations. And given RCT findings of increased mortality among critically ill pediatric patients and adults, we might want to be a little bit more careful about the patient population in which we use this for RSI. So Dr. Kotani, again, went through a very similar statistical analysis plan for his meta-analysis here. And I won't go through all the details again, but their primary objective essentially was to investigate if there was a mortality difference between propofol and other sedative agents in post-operative and critically ill patients specific for if there was increased risk of mortality. So Mike, what did Dr. Katani find? Thanks, John. So this was a little bit more robust meta-analysis inclusive of more RCTs and more patients with respect to their investigation into propofol. So overall, they were able to identify 252 RCTs that accounted or included almost 31,000 patients between a time frame of 1987 to 2022. Now, Looking at those 252 RCTs, 200 of which occurred in a surgical patient population, so a little over 150 of those were in a non-cardiac surgery investigation versus approximately 50 in a cardiac surgery type of patient population. From a comparator standpoint, 172 volatile anesthetics, so in those trials, and then 71 of those 252 RCTs looked at comparing propofol with an, another IV agent. So the primary outcome, you had alluded to all-cause mortality at the longest follow-up available for that particular study. The overall population, what were the results of that mortality? Well, with propofol, roughly 5.2% compared to any comparator group at 4.3%. And very similar to what you mentioned on the Atomidate study, John, the relative risk was slightly higher and that lower limit of the confidence interval, 1.01 again. So it technically met statistical significance that propofol was associated with higher mortality compared to other agents. And rather than a number needed to harm of just 31 in the Atomidate study, this was a number needed to harm of 235 in this meta-analysis. Looking at their subgroup, comparing critically ill patients versus those in cardiac or a non-cardiac surgery type of setting, the results were statistically significant only for cardiac surgery. And when looking really at the critically ill patient population, what we tend to deal with and focus on here on the podcast, while propofol was at 15%, the comparator group 13% mortality, that was not statistically significant. Awesome, Mike. Yeah, those are some really good points and interesting points, specifically thinking about the statistical findings as well as the populations that were being studied here. But again, with meta-analyses, there's 
always going to be limitations because the outputs of these studies are only as good as the trials that are included in the statistical analysis. So maybe starting back with Rob again, walk us through one or two limitations of this paper. And maybe Peter, I'd like to hear your thoughts as well, particularly kind of summarizing up maybe how these two might relate to each other or other potential limitations or concerns you might have. So let's start with Rob. Yeah. So this study, again, is a meta-analysis like the last one, and therefore has a lot of heterogeneity between the studies. And this study, I would say the heterogeneity is even much more pronounced than the previous study of Atomidate. There was a lot of mixing of sites for this particular study. As Mike mentioned, a lot of these patients were in the operating room, cardiac surgery type patients, a group of patients that really is not at all, in my opinion, similar to the ICU ED type emergent intubation type population. So there's a lot of heterogeneity in that. There is a lot of heterogeneity in terms of mortality outcome time points. And they noted a high risk of bias of 16% in these studies. They were also unable to double blind studies with propofol because these propofol infusion looks very different than any other type of infusion. It looks like basically like you're infusing milk. And then finally, there was likely a lot of sedative crossover. In other words, patients got additional agents. Patients may have been required subsequent dosing of different agents. And so again, heterogeneity is an especially prominent factor in this particular study, so much so that I value this study, at least from an ED and ICU care standpoint, as not that valuable. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Peter, I'm curious, because a lot of people who read the abstract or read the headlines of this paper and the other one will read that Atomidate increases your patient's risk of dying. Propofol increases your risk of dying, right? Is that what you took away? Or are there maybe some non-statistical things that might cross your mind as you're reading through what the findings of these papers were? You know, you bring up a great point, John. And I think that if you just Zoom in on the conclusion of these studies, it could be very misleading. And we talked about the limitations already, and, and Rob did a great job with that, talking about the heterogeneity. But also, we're not intubating the healthiest of folks, and we don't have a lot of information. You know, we don't have someone's cardiac profile in front of us. We don't have their hemoglobin oftentimes in front of us. So we really don't know what's going on. I would tell you, we also don't have for this the dosing that was used for Atomidate, because a lot of people's practice is half-dose Atomidate in those people who are hemodynamically challenged. And they kind of use that as a flat agent, and they compare that with ketamine. And, you know, we've already seen studies comparing ketamine and Atomidate, and then kind of shocked at blood pressure responses in those two agents, seeing hypotension more commonly in ketamine than even in atomidate. 
And so I think the heterogeneity is a big piece of it. It doesn't really drive my practice differently. And again, it's not me being blind to this. It's just me being aware of the agents and how sick our patients are and not having the complete picture on our patients. We don't have the luxury of canceling cases in the emergency department for intubation. And so I think that's part of what the challenges that we have to deal with. Yeah, I would agree 100%. Like the first thing I thought of when reading these two is like, well, absolutely, dose is important and patient selection is important, right? As clinicians, it's our job to make some of these medication decisions based off of what's wrong with the patient in front of us, right? And if we're blindly choosing, look at the comparator group in the Automidate paper. There was like five different other choices that they included as like counter or compared it to, right? Those are probably important other choices depending on what's going on with the patient, right? As opposed to just blindly using Automidate. How about you, Mike? Any big takeaways or thoughts that crossed your mind? Obviously after reading the headlines, but maybe after we've gone through it in a little more detail. Yeah, I appreciate all of us chatting about these two articles. I think as we were looking for discussion points, you know, John, you made the reference off the recording that these were certainly sent around the social media spheres with a lot of discussion and a lot of increased awareness. We felt it appropriate to discuss these two. You know, as relates to the one we just went over with respect to propofol, I'll be honest, I don't reach for propofol that often, if hardly at all, in the emergency department. It's there. I know it's there. It's in the armamentarium, but it's not my go-to from an induction agent with respect to RSI. That's the way my clinical practice is. And as Rob highlighted, as we went through the results, a lot of those studies were in an OR setting, different patient population than we're seeing. With respect to Atomidate, I feel that we've known that, and I think we feel pretty confident that yes, it does cause dose-dependent adrenal insufficiency. I don't think that was a surprising finding. But with respect to the mortality component, just touching up against that really not being significant and who we are using it in, the type of patients you guys have already went through, I'm not going to rehash that because I am completely aligned. And then the comparator groups, looking at some of those, you're right, as you mentioned, John, with respect to thiopental, I remember that in my days rotating through trauma and intubating in the TRU trauma patients coming in, but it hasn't been something that I've used in quite some time. Sorry, that caught me by surprise when I read that. I was like, thiopental. (laughs) It's worth noting. And at a high level, I think we need to acknowledge that uh, these authors invested a lot of time. They put a lot of work into it. You know, they put out some literature that once again can help to inform us, but we need to take that into context and and how those articles were put together with respect to the analysis. I don't feel, and as you guys know, I'm working overnight tonight. I don't feel like I'm going to go in and if I need to intubate somebody, avoid and put Atomidate back on the shelf and say, I'm only going with other agents. I think that's still going to be my predominant induction agent of choice. But I will, as you said, Peter, acknowledge that this is a contribution to the literature. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately for us, Atomidate's still on shortage. So we're using a lot of other alternative agents right now, benzodiazepines and that sort of thing too. So another thing, again, just affects practice. Sorry, Rob, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Oh, no, no worries. No worries at all. I think these two papers, I agree that there's a little bit of kind of sensationalism occurring here. And the point where it's interesting that 
in both papers, they're just barely significant. I mean, the 95% confidence interval, coincidentally, in both lower 95% confidence interval in both papers was 1.01, just barely missing one, which is, I find kind of interesting. But I kind of view it in this way, the sum of both of these papers. Similar to Mike, I really never use propofol as an induction agent. I think we have alternatives, so it doesn't really affect that. I use propofol after induction, certainly a lot. But, you know, I do use Tomidate. But now, after reading this paper and considering the first paper, and after considering other evidence, and considering the fact that I'm using ketamine for just about everything else now, it seems... I think I might start using ketamine a bit more as my primary induction agent. Certainly in those patients that are already kind of borderline hypotensive or maybe septic, I think I am going to start switching to ketamine in those cases and maybe leave Atomidate for trauma patients and head trauma and things like that. I think just one thing to add, there may be some selection bias to this already. We may be reaching for Atomidate in those patients who are more hemodynamically compromised to begin mm -hmm. with from a selection bias. And so that may be impacting mortality on those folks as well. Like the sicker folks, the ones who are more likely to be hypotensive are probably receiving the Atomidate, not receiving a benzodiazepine. All great points. Well, John, should we wrap things up here for this podcast? All right. Well, thanks to the three of you. I always have so much fun reviewing recent papers, reviewing hot off the press literature and getting us all together around the table and talking about these articles and their impact on our clinical practice. Having said that, we, the four of us, would love to hear what you think about these articles and really any other podcasts that we've had in recent weeks and recent months on hot off the press literature. There is that area of the website that you can send us your thoughts, your comments, and we'd love to be able to review those. We can post them on upcoming episodes and look for those other links with respect to our episodes and then upcoming conferences. But gentlemen, this has been super informative, super fun as always. And we'll close out this podcast. Wish all of our listeners a very happy, healthy holiday weekend here in the U.S. And we will look forward to talking to all of you on our next podcast. Bye for now.